Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life with the advisors from Foster and Motley. In this podcast, they share their mission to help individuals, couples, and families achieve the life they envision by providing a comprehensive wealth management experience. Join this seasoned team of experts as they explore actionable steps to improve your financial well-being and answer your most pressing questions. Welcome back to part two of our discussion about the difference financial planning and education can make in the lives of young adults. Now, that knowledge can make a monumental improvement in middle age and in retirement. I'm Patrice Sikora, and with me for this return engagement, Foster and Motley's Joe Patterson, a financial planner, and Tom Guidi, an investment manager. Now, gentlemen, in the first part of this series, we reviewed why it's important for young adults to be aware of their finances, get started with retirement savings and investing. We talked about different types of debt and did a quick overview of insurance. So let's pick up with credit, including credit cards and building credit. What kind of credit card should a young person think about getting? Thanks, Patrice. Uh, it's always good to think about how you're going to use the card and take that and let that inform, at least initially, what kind of card you might look for. So let's first say we think it is a good idea to get a credit card. We think it's a good idea to use it responsibly. Uh, and by that, we mean use it regularly, but don't carry a balance, meaning pay it off every month. So uh, an easy way to do that is to use your card at the gas station. Uh, and, and presumably we're talking to someone here who doesn't have a credit card already or doesn't have a credit card in their own name already. So you may have a card that mom and dad let you use for gas. Um, that's different. That's really in their credit and not yours. So we're talking about going out, getting your own card in your own name. So get a card first off that doesn't charge a fee. There are some cards that charge fees that provide benefits. Uh, you can think about the Amex Platinum card. I think it's 600 bucks a year. Uh, that's for the, the power traveler, uh, the person who's on a plane many times a month. Probably, I don't think somebody in their twenties is going to yeah, need that. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is that person probably isn't a twenty-something starting out in their first job, uh, looking to build credit. So that's the big key: is find a card that is no fee. But part two is uh, don't just settle for any card, because there are a lot of good no fee options out there. Um, there are cards that give you cash back. There are cards that take that to a second level and give you cash back for certain types of spending. So gas, for example, you might get a higher return on your spend than another category. Um, some cards offer rewards in the form of travel, in the form of gift cards. So you can maximize your spending, meaning do the spending you would normally do and get some benefit for it without any ongoing annual cost. And the key there is to be a regular user of the card without running up a big balance that you get to the end of the month and say, oh, shoot, I can't, I can't pay for this. When you're going for that first card, what does the card company look at in your application? Yeah. So they're going to consider your income. That's a big one, right? So if you have a job and you can demonstrate that you have regular income, that's key. They're going to look for negative marks on your credit report. So if you have zero marks, that's better than negative, right? Uh, a negative would be accounts that you haven't paid on time. Uh, you have collections accounts that, you know, a bill for a, a doctor, let's say, or a hospital bill that you didn't pay on time. 
So they're looking for lack of negative marks. They're looking for income. Uh, that's probably enough to get you a card with a modest spending limit to start. And, and I think that's the key here is build credit, right? Because what we've seen on occasion is when younger people go to buy a car, uh, certainly to get a mortgage and they lack credit, they're, they're not going to, they're going to get stuck. It's easier to buy a car than get a house. So probably next step in the line is, Hey, let's, let's get an automobile, whether it's a buyer or a lease, that's a credit event. They're going to, the finance department at the auto dealer is going to check your credit. So having all these pieces together, having a credit card that you pay off regularly, perhaps you've financed a, a vehicle in some way through a lease or a loan, you're building credit. And, and the key to keeping that credit in good shape is you make your payments every month, meaning you make your car payment every month, you pay off your monthly balance on your credit card that you use for expenses. Tom, any thoughts? Hey, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, Joe, why would somebody not just get a debit card if they're going to pay off their bill every month? It seems like a debit card does that automatically for you. Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. So a debit card is not a credit card. And as such, you are not building any credit record by using a debit card. So a debit card is a nice tool. You can get cash out of the ATM. You can buy something. Uh, all the major issuers, you know, Visa, MasterCard, they have debit cards, right? Through, through different banks. And you can make that function like a credit card as far as the buying of things and paying for stuff. However, it doesn't build your credit. Uh, part two of it is with the debit card, you are actually, by virtue of the name, of course, you're debiting your account, most likely a checking account. So if I go and spend $100, uh, that's coming right out of my account. That's a layer of safety that's removed compared to a credit card. Because if I go and spend $100 on my credit card, that's on my credit, right? I'm going to get it, that, that statement each month that says, hey, you spent this money, you spent this $100, bucks, uh, now you owe us $100. What that could do potentially is if someone were able to access my debit card, now that would presume that they've stolen the card and got the pin, uh, but this has happened, then that money comes right out of my account and it's much harder to get it back versus someone steals my credit card, goes down and buys a TV down the street at Best Buy. I can go to the issuer and say, hey, this is fraudulent. This wasn't me. Uh, they'll refund the balance to my card. No harm, no foul. So you get two things with a credit card versus the debit card, as far as benefits, you get additional layer of protection, right? If you have fraudulent charges or your card is lost or stolen, and you get the benefit of building credit. The downside is you can spend money you don't have. So that's where the spending and staying on top of things piece comes in. I can, if I have a $5,000 credit limit, I can spend $5,000 on that credit card and, and there's no, nobody checking to see if I've got $5,000 in my bank account. So that's where you have to build the habit of let's start with a few small but recurring expenses, you know, gas and groceries, right? Those are two easy ones. And those are ones that probably you might get some benefit from on in the form of points or cash back. All right. And you mentioned a house. 
Should you rent or should you buy a house? Well, I'll go ahead and tackle that one. And that, that's going to be different for everybody, of course. Renting can be a pretty nice arrangement in that uh, all the maintenance of a house or an apartment or a condo is all taken care of for you. It doesn't require a big down payment and you're not really locked in. So it means that you know, oftentimes when somebody is working at their first job, uh, they find themselves working somewhere else in a few years as they're trying to climb corporate ladder, which might necessitate moving, moving to a different city, moving maybe even within the same city or across town. And where uh, one place might have been convenient, um, right away, um, you know, later it would be a, a better location. Um, and if you buy a house, it's a lot of trouble moving from one place to the next. There's fees for moving, there's um, moving expenses, um, realtor fees, all those things play in. And it could be a, a money losing proposition buying your house if you're planning on you know, moving in just a couple of years. So renting can be a, a, pretty, nice, a pretty nice arrangement for a lot of people uh, when they're first getting established out of their parents' home or out of college. When you decide where you want to live and you'd like to buy, you have to consider how much down payment does a house require. Um, the traditional is put 20% down. Are people still putting that much down these days? I think in, well, here today, somebody might listen to the six months from now and, it, and things That's might true. be a little bit different. Here today, buying a house is, is almost like a competition. So every, um, the better finances somebody has, the, they have a leg up in that competition. So I would say that, yes, today people are putting a significant amount down, uh, but there can be arrangements to put less than the t- traditional 20% down on a house. It could be 10%, uh, maybe even some programs for a first buyer, even less than that. Uh, But you have to also consider the affordability of the ongoing monthly principal and interest payment. Suddenly you're paying taxes, you're paying homeowner's insurance, you're paying maintenance on a house. So if an air conditioner goes bust six months in, you're on the hook for that, unless you want to sit in the sweltering heat. Um, so there's a lot of things that can come up with owning a house um, that you have to be prepared for. Um, so that uh, requires that people have maybe an emergency fund set aside for those types of major expenses that can come up um, and have a good handle on the cash flow that comes out every month to make sure that they can afford not just the house payment, but everything else that goes along with it. All right. Give me some of the pros to owning a house then. One pro, you presumably over time uh, are building equity, right? So when you buy a house and make a down payment and make that monthly payment, some of which reduces the principal of the loan, then you're building equity. It's a form of saving, right? Now, house prices fluctuate, but over time, that that has proven to be a, a source of significant equity in, in our country. People who own homes have generally a higher net worth than people who don't. Owning a home is not an investment. It's not a good investment per se. Uh, 
no one would say, hey, make your home an investment. Uh, and I'm excluding the people who flip houses for a living uh, because that's that's a profession and, and it's a full-time job in, in many ways. But buying your primary residence isn't a great investment per se, but you are building equity. You're in the habit. It, it's for saving, right? You are making that payment every month. And if you're in that home for a bit of time, there's some good chance you're going to have some equity, meaning the value of your home is going to exceed the value of the loan you owe on that home when you go to sell it, right? So that's a great thing. Depending on your situation, whether you're itemizing or not, if you're itemizing on your taxes, you can deduct the interest you're paying on the mortgage. So that's good, right? Now, we're in a world where mortgage rates are really low. That's good, all things being equal, because you have less interest to pay. You may or may not be able to deduct, to deduct that interest. So, And you know, you're not at the whim of a landlord, right? And this is your place. You can do what you want with it. That's a nice thing. You want to make updates and improvements, paint the walls, do whatever that you can do it. On the other hand, as Tom said, you're in charge of everything. So if you want something done, then you're going to do it yourself or pay somebody to do it, right? And that's, right. that's going to cost time and or money to do so. I think the biggest challenge today for a early 20 something is thinking about pulling together a 20% down payment. That could be a pretty significant number. And it's probably something that if you have in mind, you want to do it, start setting up kind of a separate account, probably a lower risk cash type account and say, all right, here's my, here's my down payment fund. Uh, because that, it, as Tom said, particularly now, sellers are likely to get multiple offers unless their price is just ridiculously high. And with those multiple offers, they will lay them all out on the table, not only look at the number, but say, well, buyer A is a first-time home buyer. They're putting down 5%. Buyer B, they're bringing 50% to the table. So uh, I'm more likely to close with buyer B than buyer A, you know, as far as they're not going to have any hangups in underwriting or shoot, there's, there's a lot of cash offers hitting the market today. Uh, it's unfortunately hard to compete with that if you are a first-time home buyer. The benefit, of course, or at least the, the reality to keep in mind is markets are cyclical. It's not going to be permanent that there's this wild competition where people are lined up around the block to see a house and they're collecting 20 or 30 offers on the first week. Markets have This has happened before. And again, the cyclical nature of it is that We'll work through this lack of inventory, most likely. Now, whether it happens in six months or 18 months or, or who knows when. Um, so that might argue for renting right now. Uh, renting a place that you can afford, that, that is within your budget, that allows you to set aside some money uh, to be used for a down payment when you're ready to start looking for your first house. Hey, Tom, is it a good idea to maybe go to your parents to help with the down payment? Well, uh, not everybody's parents can afford that. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, I think parents, um, are well aware of this environment generally. Um, they've probably, you know, if parents live in a home, they've probably seen some of their neighbor's homes sell and they kind of shake their head at, at the prices that are happening, um, just in their neighborhood. So 
they're aware. Um, some parents are able to provide their kids financial help um, throughout their lives. Um, enjoy doing that. And, and some people, you know, just by the nature of their family finances, their broader family are not going to receive that help. So yeah, if you can get parental help, if that was always part of your parents' plan to, to help in this circumstance, it's great. But I don't think everybody can expect that. Joe, you mentioned a vehicle, a car, when we were talking earlier about uh, credit. Is it is it better to buy a car or is it better to lease a car? This is a conversation that I've heard both sides of the argument and it's, they both make sense. Yeah. And, and we'll, uh, we'll do the ultimate punt as, as sometimes we do and say, it depends. So right now there's an interesting timestamp. Uh, Tom references with home buying. The same is true with car buying. It's a, it's a very strange time to buy a car. So we're in this world where we are seeing significant supply chain shortages that are impacting people and manufacturers who make almost anything, but notably anything with a chip in it, right? Anything with a microchip, which includes vehicles, among other goods, is heavily impacted because there's a shortage of chips, right? So it's been well publicized, but buying a car right now looks very different than it did a couple of years ago. Hopefully it looks different than it than it does in a year or two looking forward. There's there's little inventory, historically low inventory. So there's there's a little bit of take what you can get right now. Car dealers in some cases have 15 to 20% of the normal car inventory they would keep on a lot. So you're going to be hit with some of the same challenges you are in the home market albeit at lower pricing, right? Because you're buying a car, not a home. When you lease a car, you are going to have to have your credit run, just like if you're buying a car. And, and one thing to note that you're not going to see it, but there's an interest rate associated with that lease as well. So you can ask for that. You should ask for that. Um, lease versus buy is somewhat of a cash flow decision. You can lease it. You can often lease a car at a cheaper monthly rate than buying a car. So if, you're, if your cash flow is a little lower now and you need a vehicle uh, and you find a good lease deal, then maybe that's a good fit. Uh, the caveat there is lease deals are almost never good for someone who puts a lot of miles on their car. Most, most leases are going to come with an annual mileage cap. So 10 to 12,000 miles a year for three years, let's say. If you're socking 15 or 20,000 miles on the car each year, it's going to end up likely being not cost effective to do the least. And again, you can get all these numbers up front. You can get the, the overage cost for the mileage. Um, the dealer will give you a residual value of what the car is worth at the end of the lease. Now, right now, residual values are going to be much higher, right? Because not only do we have not have enough new cars, we don't have enough used cars because people have swept up all the used cars because they couldn't buy new ones. So, um, that might mean that leasing is intriguing. Uh, it might mean that, hey, let's let's look for a used car. Um, there's it's a challenging market, unfortunately, and, and we're hope, hopeful that you know down the road it'll get less challenging. But again, you you always want to understand what interest rates you're paying, whether it's a lease or a loan, and how does it fit my cash flow, and what do I need? Do I need um, a car that I can 
put a lot of miles on? Do I have a short commute? In which case, maybe I buy a used car with some miles on it. Um, that'll tide me through for a handful of years. And then I can, when the market normalizes a little bit, I can go out and find something I want. And hopefully by then my cash flow situation has improved as well. Tom, any thoughts? Yes. If you give me Excel, you tell me exactly what you plan on doing and what the prices are, I could figure out which is better. But that's not most people's reality is uh, we don't know what we're going to do in the next five years. You put a finger in the air, you make the best decision for you. But in general, if you're going to own it for less time, you know, if you know you're just going to want to switch cars in three to five years, um, if you're going to put less miles on it, then between those two things, generally a lease might make more sense. If you're the type of person who buys a car or expects to buy a car, own it for 10 years, 12 years, um, like I am, and then owning generally makes more sense, but you have to see the numbers. Here we've been talking about the best use of money, the best tactics to to use your money to its greatest extent. But what about saving? I've got I've got this extra cash flow. I'm I've got a new job and it's great. And I what should I do with it? Where should I put it first? Which will give me the best return on my savings? Yeah, let me just kind of go over the order because it's been scattered about our conversation here. The number one thing is that your employer is offering you as part of your compensation package a match to your 401k. Oftentimes. So you should take advantage of that. If you don't, you're not taking all the money that your, your employer has offered to you. So to the extent that you're matched on your employer-sponsored plan, 401k plan, or there's some others for things like hospitals, like a 403b or a university has their own type of plan, but there's an employer-sponsored retirement plan, contribute enough that you get all that they're willing to give you, the match. Number two, you need to set up an emergency fund. The emergency fund you know, traditionally would have three to six months worth of expenses set aside in a separate account usually from your checking account, but you could use your checking account. As long as you have that much cash set aside that if something happens, you know, a car wreck and you need to replace a vehicle, um, big you know, healthcare expense, um, yeah, anything that might come up, you need an emergency fund. And to the extent that you know, owning a home might move you more towards six months. If you, you know, you're renting, maybe it's three months makes more sense, but somewhere in there. So once you've accomplished the emergency fund, the next is contribute to a Roth IRA. So the Roth IRA could be opened up at any custodian. A custodian is somebody like Charles Schwab or Vanguard or Fidelity. Um, there's a number of them, but um, open up a Roth IRA. This is for longer term savings once again. Roth IRAs, uh, you could contribute $6,000. And after you've maxed out that, which you know now we're we're talking uh, that you're setting aside pretty big dollars at that point. Um, consider additional retirement savings in the company sponsor plans, so more than what they're willing to match. And HSA accounts, the health savings accounts, can be good long-term savings, which you don't have to spend each year. 
So meaning that if you have a health expense, um, you can use those HSA funds to pay for the health expense, but it can also be a good tool for long-term savings if you don't use it for healthcare expenses, um, if you just use uh, your checking account or your credit card to, to pay normal ongoing health savings uh, or health expenses and save those HSA dollars uh, for a longer term. But those are for health, correct? Correct. Now, you mentioned Roth IRA. Before we go any further, let's circle back to that and the difference, please, between the Roth IRA and the traditional IRA. Yeah, so that's a good point, Patrice. Uh, the Roth IRA, so both, both accounts are individual retirement accounts. Uh, they come with statutory maximums of $6,000 per year that you can put in there, those accounts. Uh, an extra $1,000 if you are over the age of 50 for a total of 7000 So the difference is in the treatment of the funds from a tax perspective. On a Roth account, you are putting after-tax money in there, meaning you earn $6,000 at least in the calendar year. You make a contribution of six, up to $6,000 in that account. You have paid tax on those monies, meaning there is no benefit to putting the money in the account from it that doesn't reduce your taxes. The benefit is all funds in that Roth IRA grow tax-free and are not subject to tax upon distribution. So for the younger investor that we're talking to, the Roth is a, is a fantastic opportunity because you can compound wealth over a long period of time without paying any future taxes on those investments. So you get a dividend, doesn't incur a tax. You, you take money out of that account in retirement, doesn't incur a tax. So it offers the best opportunity to grow your funds in a tax-effective way over time. A traditional IRA, and this you can apply everything I'm saying right now to a 401k as well. Traditional IRA, you take a deduction when you make the contribution. So if I put $6,000 into that, that account, I've reduced my effective income by, by, by $6,000, meaning I won't pay tax on that. Same is true if I put money in my 401k, my traditional 401k. And many employers now most offer a Roth 401k option. That is intriguing for this younger investor we're talking about. All things being equal, if you are younger and are at the lower end of the threshold for your earnings potential, meaning you expect to keep earning more over time, which in practice means you're going to be in a higher and higher tax bracket over time, younger and lower earnings means that the Roth is is the best bet. As you earn more, as you approach retirement, the value of not paying tax is going to exceed the value of the tax-free treatment. And so there's, a, there's not a direct you know, line of demarcation when you say, okay, I'm going to start with Roth and now I'm going to flip to traditional. It's situational, but by and large, this early mid-20s uh, saver that we're talking to the Roth is going to be a big win over time. All right, Tom, this looks like it's yours. Taxable investment portfolios. Yes. So fitting in somewhere in that mix, depending on how you've prioritized things, could be saving for a down payment on a house. We've mentioned that earlier. So depending on how important that is to you and when you want to do it, um, you might want to, you know, maybe this is after you've 
you've had your emergency fund fully filled up, uh, you want to contribute to a Roth IRA and then ignore the employer extra uh, contributions to the HSA or employer-sponsored plan because I want to save for a house. So fitting in anywhere in there is saving for a house uh, down payment if that's something that's important to you. Longer term, you can use taxable savings to save for retirement or other long-term goals. Um, And that just means that um, the big difference between saving in a taxable account versus a retirement account is that you pay taxes along the way instead of when you withdraw funds. So paying taxes along the way means that if you say, bought an S&P 500 index fund three years ago, and today it's worth 30% more than it was then, and you sell it, you have to pay capital gains tax on that gain. Or if you've received dividends from stocks, you have to pay tax on those dividends. So a taxable savings account is pushed to the end of the prioritization because it can add to your tax burden. But in the long run, yes, you want to have some money set aside in a taxable account. It's a valuable thing. It gives a lot of flexibility. Um, but it's not just it's just not the biggest priority compared to some of the other options that are available out there. And I think one key to everything we just said, particularly the retirement accounts, the Roth IRA or traditional IRA, uh, even the taxable portfolio, the HSA, all of these you can use as habit builders. Uh, and by that, I mean, when you make a contribution to your 401k, it happens each paycheck. Uh, this automatic investing helps form that good habit. It's nice to look at savings as not optional. Uh, it's almost like a utility expense. Uh, that $6,000 number divides nicely by 12, right? Sounds a lot like 500 bucks a month. <laughs> so you can line up contributions to your Roth, let's say, to hit the same time you get your paycheck. So you get paid twice a month. A couple of days after that, you can go into your account and say, all right, I want it to, on the third and the 18th of the month, I want an automatic transfer of $500 or $250 in this case to my Roth IRA. And it's going to auto invest in whatever funds I own when it hits the account. So you build that habit with your IRA, with your 401k, with your HSA, you know, we're talking to financial professionals when you can say sentences with acronyms, then you kind of get used to it. And it's just, it just happens. And it's a normal thing. It's part of your budget. And that is the best way for a young investor to build wealth over time. It's kind of boring, right? But it's the best way to do it. When you see those numbers growing, I don't think it's boring at all. Yeah. And if it comes right out of your paycheck, you don't even miss it. You don't miss it. And, and if, you, if you want a good example, go, uh, go online, um, do a search for compound interest example. And I love these things. Go you can it. look at the difference of investing at 22 versus 32, let's say, and how much extra wealth you build, not even by investing a lot of money, just by making a Roth contribution each year from age 22 to 32. You put yourself in a, in a situation where you don't have to play catch up because it's hard to play catch up when you're talking about investment return and compound return. 
the earlier you can start growing that nest egg, the more wealth you will build over time and getting in the habit early allows you to do that. Tom, this is a spreadsheet uh, question here. Come on now. Come on. Yes. So, you know, just give an example of what Joe's speaking of, the Roth contribution uh, being 6,000 a year or $500 a month. If you save that for 20 years, and let's say that your earnings, just assume that this is a straight line 7%. We know that returns in the stock market don't give you a straight line return. You can um, look at the news and you see it go up and go down. Um, as long as you're contributing through that, that that can be your friend. You can be contributing along the way, whether the market is up or it's down. But let's say that you contribute $500 a month and you do that for 20 years. So now we're talking about, you know, say from age 40 to age 60. Uh, so you start later in your life. That gets, uh, you put away $120,000. Those are your contributions. And it's grown to about $245,000. Now, let, let's say that you started earlier. You started when uh, you're 30 and you contribute till when you're 60. Um, so it means you contributed more. You contributed 180000 uh, but it's grown to $566,000. That's sounding good. Yep. Sounding good. So in, the more you can contribute younger, it allows you to use time. And that's what younger people have. They have time. Um, that's on their side. So the earlier you can get started, the earlier you can build those savings habits, uh, the better off you'll be. And it'll give you flexibility as you get older. Make, you know, have uh, the retirement that you envision or give you flexibility to achieve any of your goals that involve your finances. All right. The budgeting you've been talking about, I'm sure there are tools online. You can go find something to help you put a budget together. There's a, a little note here in the, the outline that I was given. It's perfect. Recurring subscriptions. Holy cow. If you don't keep track of those things, you're losing money month after month. Open my phone and Apple has, I, I have the Apple phone um, and I go to the app store and somewhere on there, it shows my subscriptions. And I said, Peloton was on there, which uh, I think $13 a month or $15, but whatever the Peloton uh, subscription that version is that I have. It's summer. I haven't used Peloton for four months. It's been warm outside. I've been mowing the grass. That's my exercise. I don't. I haven't needed Peloton, um, but here I was. You know, last four months paying for Peloton. So I, I canceling it just in time for fall to set in. I'll probably resubscribe about November or so. But in the meantime, I don't need Peloton. Uh, you know, somebody else. If you're using it, that subscription, you're getting value out of it. It's great, um, but. There's all these things that we subscribe to, and we just kind of forget that it's around. I think those companies do that on purpose. That's part of their their business model. Well, yeah, there is uh, there there are many tools online. Some are free. Some you can buy to use budgeting and get a handle on what you're spending. So we're not going to get into the tools. There's a bunch of them, and they can help you out. I would say. Think about your financial picture as a whole. 
Uh, simple is good, right? At least, especially when you're starting out, because simple allows you to keep track of things. So have your checking account. That's your kind of core spending account. Have a credit card. If you have money going out of fewer places, it's easy to see where it's going. Uh, even now, banks and credit card companies offer budgeting tools, uh, but it is nice to link them, link your accounts to one place and, and get a, a high level. I would recommend doing that. Just get an overview of where your money's going. And a lot of those tools will say, hey, look at all these recurring subscriptions you have. So they'll call it out to you. Um, and you know, you might've signed up for the Apple TV plus uh, free, de- you know, free for three months deal seven months ago. And then you see, oh, I'm paying you know, $4.99 a month for Apple TV plus, And I don't think I've used it in four months, but I'm paying for it. So um, having a tool that kind of keeps that stuff in front of you, you know, you don't need to be obsessive about it, but you, but take a look at what you're spending and where it's going. And if they're, and see what the patterns are and, you know, ask yourself, Hey, am I getting value out of this? Like Tom said, or is it, is it just an expense that that's, you know, kind of chipping away at my, my monthly income. Um, I think that's good. That's a good way to take control of your, of your data and your spending is okay. We'll see where things are going. A couple other tips for the young saver investor. Um, when we talk about taking control of your data, a few things you can do. One is, and our clients hear this all the time. They're probably tired of hearing it. Uh, note to clients, if, if you do it, I won't talk about it anymore. Um, freeze your credit. So this applies to everybody. Freezing your credit means you lock down your credit at one of the major credit bureaus. And we've talked about this in a previous episode, but for the young investor who is starting out, your credit is as valuable as anyone's, right? Because you're going to use that credit to rent an apartment, buy a house, buy a car, do, do a number of things in the future, get another credit card. So your credit is, is a hugely valuable tool. And if someone is able to steal your credit information, commit, commit a credit fraud crime against you, that's a mess. And it's a mess you don't have time for. You got better things to do with your time. So if you freeze your credit, that's, that's free and you lock it down, no one can touch it. Password manager, you're putting your passwords in to buy stuff at all these different websites. And don't ask me how many sites I've stored my financial data at you know, my credit card information more than I would care to admit. Uh, but if you have a password manager, we use LastPass. Uh, one password is a good, good one keeper. Uh, there's a number of good ones out there. You can create high challenging passwords and store them in an encrypted manner so that someone can't access a site, a financial institution, you know, wherever you buy stuff and store your credit card, you want to lock that down. So a password manager, meaning get all your passwords in one place with one tool is a good way to, to do that. Um, Tom, any other thoughts as far as good ways to take control of your, your data as a young saver and investor? No, I think it's just always remember that, that you're your best advocate, meaning that Anybody else out there can't have uh, your interest at heart as much as you do. So you should understand the things that you're buying, things you're spending on. Um, You understand your financial life better than anybody else. Um, And other people out there, whether it's your banker, your insurance person, they're all trying to sell to a certain extent, a product to you. 
And maybe it's a good fit. Maybe it's not. It's sometimes hard to tell. Um, So you have to shop around for those things um, and make sure that, that your interests are being served. When it comes time to need some help with those decisions, a fee-only planner it can be a good solution. Um, fee-only implies that there's nobody there trying to sell you something, sell a product that has a commission. Um, they're only providing advice for a fee. And that means that they can be on your side and help you uh, determine if you know, products are appropriate, effective, um, and so a fee-only planner like Joe uh, can be a great solution for providing advice and kind of dissecting you know, all those different financial decisions in your life. All right. We really are up against the clock here. There's so much we could still be going over, but give me some top action items that people, young people, middle-aged people, whatever people should take after they listen to this podcast. Get that match, get that employer match. Tom, Tom brought that up a couple of times. Uh, that's free money. Don't leave free money on the table. Uh, that's the, that's the, the easiest money you'll ever, ever earn is save money in an account and your employer gives you more money in that account. Freeze your credit and, do, and set up a password manager. Those are, that's low-hanging fruit. Uh, that keeping your data safe reduces aggravation in the future. Make sure you're invested appropriately. Tom talked about this too, and it's it's highly important. If you put money in a 401k and you're 24 and it's in a cash account, that's probably not invested appropriately. You should be invested in assets, likely stocks that will grow long-term. So, so take a look at that and ask for help uh, on all these. Ask, ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, I'd say another one, if you have debt, um, look at the interest rates, right? If it's mortgage debt at 2.75%, well, that's probably okay. Uh, if it's credit card debt at 20%, that's not good. So review your debt, prioritize paydowns for the high interest rate loans. And Tom, you had a quick uh, note. We were discussing this before we started recording. Do your taxes at least once. Do them yourself when you're young. And there's so many. Uh, and I'm going to say you can do them with pen and paper, pencil and paper. Let's, let's be humble here and say that we're going to have to erase at some point. Um, try to do your taxes at least once with paper and pencil, meaning no tax act software. Uh, don't, um, don't go down the block to the Jackson Hewitt or whoever the tax service is, H&R Block. Try to do them once. It gives a great understanding of um, what the rate of taxes that you pay, where tax brackets lie, maybe some things you thought were deductible, uh, maybe aren't, whether it's a charitable contribution or, or your mortgage interest, just because of the rules and the limits that apply to those things. Um, and doing them once gives you a great understanding. Um, doing them on the computer gives you generally an accurate, easy number, but it's coming to the final solution without understanding the process and the calculations that go into it. And um, doing them on paper, you get a better idea of how everything works. Doing them on paper is cathartic. Traumatizing, probably, (laughs) but good trauma. Do it once. All right, guys, how can people reach you to continue this discussion? 
Uh, as always, uh, check us out on our website, www.fosterandmotley.com. Uh, you'll find information about the team as well as uh, good contact numbers to get a hold of us. All right. Make a difference in the life of a young adult you know by sharing these two episodes of Foster and Motley's podcast about wealth and life. And don't forget all the other shows done by Joe Patterson, Tom Guidi, and their colleagues. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content, including mention of specific investments or planning techniques, is for informational and for educational purposes only. It is not intended as a recommendation or a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster and Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.